0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Elsa Hunasan. She is the author of Being Seen, One Deaf-Blind Woman's Fight... To End Ableism, published in New York by Simon Element, 2021. Elsa, it's a delight to be in communication with you today. It's
1: a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up and were there any formative events in your life that catalyzed the adult you would later become?
1: So I grew up uh, in a combination of Seattle, Washington and Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I was raised in the gay community of Seattle, primarily. And that was definitely formative for me, because I was being raised in the 1990s by queer parents, which meant that I was growing up right in the middle of the AIDS pandemic. Um, And that has been a formative part of my life, because it is part of why I became an activist. I was raised by a father who was dying of AIDS, who worked until his last days as an activist, supporting people in education and AIDS prevention. So... I would say that's one of the formative experiences for me is that I came from that community in that time.
0: <clears throat> what inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: So I have been working in the field of media studies for the last 12 years at this point. Um I've written a lot of essays about how blindness and deafness were represented on film and books and television. And I realized that they were all sort of centralizing around a a common point or a theme. And when you have a common theme in your writing, you end up needing to write a book because you've got all of these essays and this idea, and you can't really flesh out that central theory unless if you sit down and write a book. So I did. Um, And that central theory was that the way that we depict disability in film is actively harming The way that society views disability.
0: Your memoir describes your relationship with books at great length. Which books have made the biggest impact on you as a person? Are there any authors that have been particularly influential upon you?
1: Uh, Tamora Pierce certainly has been a huge influence on me. Her uh, Song of the Lioness Quartet um, created a huge landscape of influence for me. I actually got to meet her for the first time this year. Um, and those books were about a girl who could become a knight, and it was about what it means to face your fears and what it means to be somebody who isn't necessarily in the norm uh, growing up. And so those books had a major influence on me. I-, I would also say that as an academic, the work of Judith Butler has been extremely informative, um, especially Gender Trouble, uh, because <clears throat> what Butler does with gender, I tend to do with disability. I talk a lot about how disability is a performance and how it is not simply something that you can view and immediately understand based on what you're seeing. It's about how somebody inhabits disability. Um, So those are two authors that I would like to call out in terms of my relationship to literature.
0: Your memoir also features many allusions to films, TV shows, and Netflix series. Which movies and TV programs have impacted you most as a person and what do your tastes in movies and television programs say about you as a person?
1: Um I like horror a lot uh, which is a genre that I think is useful for understanding fear and it's also a way of understanding the unknown and I'm always curious about what I don't understand. So I know that horror for me has always been a place where I can understand or investigate new ideas and concepts. Um, I'm also a science fiction and fantasy reader and writer, and I have been for my whole life. Um, And I think that for me, that's a lot about just wanting to imagine a better future and wanting to understand what the future could look like in a time period where there were less restrictions. Um, In terms of film, I would say that... There's no particular film that specifically resonates with my identity, but I think the experience of watching and understanding media has been formative to who I am as a person. I see media as a way to understand the society that we live in. And so watching it and consuming it and then understanding it has become a way of understanding how our society works for me.
0: Can you tell us about Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction? What did this project mean to you?
1: Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction was uh, in, in, became an, it, into being around 2017, 2018. Uh, I was reached out to by the publishers of Uncanny Magazine, uh, Lynn and Michael Thomas, and they wanted me to edit the nonfiction section, of the special issue that was Disabled People Destroy. Um, disabled People Destroy Science Fiction comes out of a longer history. There have been a number of destroy series pieces there's been women destroy there's been queers destroy there's been people of color destroy and it meant to me that i could participate in this legacy of undoing harm that a genre has done to disabled people and so every essay was a way of giving people space to speak back to what their experiences were within the genre that they worked in or that they loved um I also had the pleasure of working with Dominic Parizia, who was my co-editor in chief. He edited the uh, the fiction section, rather, and we worked very closely together. And what it meant to me was working on a project that was entirely disabled people within the scope of getting to tell our own stories and share our perceptions of a genre that often doesn't think about us. So it meant a lot to me to be able to be a part of that project.
0: Can you tell us about your guide dog, Astra? What are your memories of Astra?
1: Astra uh, retired from service in 2020. Um, He was a fantastic guide dog who unfortunately did not enjoy working during the pandemic. Um, And so I, I miss him a lot, but I'm glad that I was able to send him to a place where he was able to get more work because the people he went, the person he went to now has a more active lifestyle during the pandemic whereas I just didn't go as many, as many places during 2020 um, but I can tell you that Astro was an incredible dog who could cut through Times Square very quickly. His favorite place to work was really busy places so he liked working Penn Station he liked working Times Square, he liked working in Midtown Manhattan um, <clears throat> and that was the kind of high energy dog that he was so his his best moments were the ones where there were lots and lots of people and it was chaotic. I think probably my favorite memory of him is in 2019 I went to WorldCon in Dublin. That was where I won the Hugo for disabled people destroy science fiction and he worked Temple Bar which is Dublin's party district at 9:30 at night on a Saturday. And if you've ever been to Dublin at 9:30 at night on a Saturday, you know that that is an extremely high-octane situation for a guide dog, and he just, he was fine. That we didn't make a single misstep, I didn't trip, I didn't run into a single person, and most of those people were incredibly drunk. So the dog was able to manage all of that, and I think that he's an incredible guide, and I hope that he's having a great time working now.
0: What do you mean by catcalling? How do disabled people encounter and experience catcalling?
1: Well, catcalling is something that happens to women on a regular basis, and disabled people are also women. And so we experience the typical type of catcalling that any woman or sometimes queer person on the street experiences, where you are shouted at using derogatory or sexually inappropriate things. But I also experience people who call out my disability publicly on the street. <clears throat> And that's certainly a different form of catcalling, but it still resonates within the same category of harassment. It's still people calling out something about your body on the street when it is none of their business and trying to get your attention by doing so. Um, It's still a form of harassment. It's still a form of violence. And so disabled women experience it in similar ways, but also in some different ways. And I want it to stop because nobody should be harassed on the street just because of what they look like.
0: What did Helen Keller mean to you as a role model? What can she teach others? What virtue ethics does she embody?
1: I have never seen Helen Keller as a role model. Um, Helen Keller has always been a very complicated figure for me because her entire existence has been predicated on conforming to non-disabled society and so she her legacy is very complicated for me i actually did an entire radio lab episode about that that came out this march called the helen keller exorcism um but fundamentally helen keller has not been a role model for me if anything she's sort of been an anti-hero uh someone whose myth has been used to try and force me to do things that i'm not interested in doing or to make me somebody that i'm not and so I, I feel pretty strongly that the non-disabled people shouldn't be looking at Helen Keller for any kind of virtue, um, unless if they want to think about a disabled woman being a socialist and an activist, in which case, have at it? But what non-disabled people constantly come to is this idea of learning how to speak, and that that is the most remarkable thing that she did. And for that reason, I don't really resonate with Helen Keller.
0: You write the following on pages 267 and 268. I won't be saying dieenu for my civil rights any longer. I won't be accepting that it is enough to have crumbs. I want to access the world with my fingertips, with my cane, my single eye, and my bionic ears. I want to tell stories about people like me and have them told to me too. I want equal rights under the law. There's no "dianu" left in me. Can you clarify what you mean in that passage?
1: Dianu is a word that we use during Passover in the Jewish tradition. And in Dayenu, uh what it is, is it is literally saying that would be enough. If Hashem had given us Torah, but not taken us to Sinai, Dayenu, it wouldn't have been enough. And I don't believe that there is, there would have been enough for disabled people's civil rights. I don't believe that we deserve less than what we should be given. There is no, there is enough for me. Because civil rights should not be given out like crumbs parceled away. And this is often what happens to disabled people. We're told, we will give you this, but we won't give you what you really need. You just have to wait. And I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of disabled people having to wait for equal rights. I'm tired of disabled people having to wait for access into buildings at an equal rate. I'm tired of disabled people having to wait for equal opportunities for employment or for education. We can't just say it's enough anymore. It's been 32 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. There's, there's no point in saying it would be enough.
0: You write on page 226 the following, a disabled life is still at its core a life worth living. My life is worth living threading the needle so that I could honor my feelings about the anti-vax population, that I could not want anyone else to have to be disabled in the way that I am. And at the same time, fight for my equality and the equality of all disabled people is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. It was difficult to find the path, but it's a path worth walking. Disability will always exist. To be human is to be vulnerable. And disability is a factor in physical vulnerability the human condition is about perpetually changing and degrading as we age after all the margin of the population that is disabled goes up drastically after the age of 50. can you elaborate on that
1: passage i can um, i think that it's important for people to recognize that they will become disabled at some point in their lifetime and for me the, the anti-vax people say, well, we, we don't need to get vaccines. And I am strongly pro-vaccine. But I was disabled because of a disease. So if I say it's perfectly fine to live in my disabled body, and I'm also fighting against the disease that disabled me, some people have said that that seems a little bit um, troubling because I'm saying I don't want this disability to exist anymore. But, but the truth is, deafblindness is always going to exist. You may go deaf while you are aging, you may go blind while you're aging, and you will still be deafblind, even if you didn't become deafblind as a child. It would just be that Ravella, the thing that disabled me, which does many other terrible things to people, including killing them, would have been eradicated. A disease is worth eradicating because it matters. Disabled bodies aren't going to be eradicated by simply changing that, that process of vaccinating a single person. And being disabled by a disease that we could get rid of is very different from being disabled by your just lifetime aging and being disabled by the experience of living in a body. Um, so I think that it's not really contrary to say that I want, I want this particular illness to go, but I want my disabled body to be honored and respected.
0: What is diagnosis capitalism? Can you explain the term? Why is this a worrisome problem? How has this phenomenon hurt the disabled?
1: Diagnosis capitalism is the concept that we are being medicalized in order for medical companies to make money and for insurance companies to make money. Insurance companies profit when you receive a diagnosis. The minute that you have a disability, they're able to deny you coverage. They're able to deny you lower premier sorry, low, able to deny you access to certain things that you need. Hearing aids are not covered by insurance, so you still have to pay out of pocket to the people who make hearing aids. Wheelchairs are often not covered by insurance, which means that the money that, go, that should be paid by insurance comes from you. Diagnosis capitalism is consistently holding disabled people in a poverty situation by forcing the disabled person to essentially pay for their own care even though insurance is supposed to cover care medical care for people who have it so what it does is it disenfranchises people by saying that their bodies are not worth paying for and that unless it's a medical need which they can decide whether or not is worthy whether you are worthy of that payment they just won't do it Diagnosis capitalism is extremely important because it underlines that the capitalist system is harming disabled people regularly. And the only way to change that is to change the way that we look at financial supports of disabled people. This extends to things like Social Security and Medicare, where disabled people are required to live in poverty in order to receive access to government support and benefits. If we look at that again under the lens of diagnosis capitalism what it says is if you have this kind of body you cannot participate in the capitalist system unless if you are under these circumstances so it's the financial issues around disability are massive and i highly recommend that your listeners go and do research into medicare and the difficulty around receiving medicare and social security support
0: Perhaps the TV show that appears most often in your book is Star Trek. What does Star Trek say about disability?
1: Star Trek uh, has a lot of different things to say about disability. The Star Trek of my childhood was a challenging representation of disability. Um, Geordi LaForge was the first blind character that I think I ever saw on television. And his blindness was partially cured by the use of a visor. And as a blind kid... I wanted to see a character who was like me, who was blind and who had to cope, who had to live with their disability, and seeing a character who was beloved also be someone who was able to be cured by the technology that supported them was a complicated thing for me to look back on as an adult and to realize that that was my first role model. Um, Star Trek also has other disability representation. There are wheelchair users in Star Trek Discovery, and... So we are also looking at a world where there could be more disabled characters, where it is a utopian or hopeful uh, science fictional setting, where there can be wheelchairs that go through the hallways of that particular ship, and you would be fine. And so I think Star Trek is in that odd place where it could be a much more hopeful representation of disability than it sometimes appears.
0: You write the following page. Oh, to
1: be clear, I love Star Trek. My father raised me on it. I watched it every Thursday night for DS9. I watched it every Tuesday night for Enterprise. I love Star Trek, but I think that it's a problematic show.
0: You write the following on page 13. The media often depicts small disabled children as acutely heroic, with organizations embarking on quests to make their lives worth living, politicians and parents legislating for their rights and strangers cooing at their adaptive devices. Unlike "quote unquote, seniors, elderly disabled people, once special needs children reach their intermediate form, disabled young adults, they suddenly metamorphose from adorable strivers to burdens on society. That transition hurts. All the support that non-disabled society had offered you as a child is snatched away on your 18th birthday in the careful house of cards your family has built for you will vanish in an instant suddenly you need guardianship you need to prove your worth your wheelchair is no longer cute and you can't get the fun style hearing aids anymore also you have to pay for those hearing aids what do you mean in this passage can you go into more detail
1: when you turn 18 there are a number of supports that exist that go away and there are a couple of different reasons for this. One of them is that you are considered a legal adult. But if you have a disability that impairs your cognitive function, or that means that it's hard for you to live by yourself, uh, the state may require that you have support through legal means by power of attorney or some other version like a guardianship that allows your family to still care for you in the way that they have for the first 18 years of your life. In addition to that, there is legislation in a number of states that requires insurance companies to cover things like hearing aids for children. That's true in the state of Washington. But once you turn 18, that goes away. And so then you've gone from, I'm able to pay for my hearing aids because it's paid for by the insurance, to suddenly, let's say you need new hearing aids at the age of 19. If you're a 19-year-old disabled kid, you probably don't have a day job. Maybe your family can help pay for your hearing aids, but maybe they can't, and your hearing aids are $5,000 for a pair. That's not a small amount of money to a 19-year-old who's in college or getting their associates to break. Mm-hmm. So it, it, again, gets back to this concept of diagnosis capitalism and also that capitalism is fundamentally disenfranchising disabled people. Mm-hmm. Um. One of the other things to think about mm-hmm. in that passage is that disabled people aren't allowed to have fun with their equipment. I had to find the right audiologist who would let me have brightly colored, visible hearing aid plugs. Prior to this year, my, well, this last two years, actually, my hearing aids had to be invisible. The audiologist wouldn't let me have brightly colored hearing aids because once you're an adult, they're supposed to blend in. But this is entirely about what people think disabled people should do. Blend in their disability and make sure it's not visible instead of having things that are aesthetically pleasing or interesting or even just visible. And so it's that invisibility, that expectation of invisibility, that I think is part of the harm there.
0: Can you tell us about Eeyore? Who is Eeyore?
1: Eeyore is a writer friend of mine um, and she would prefer to remain anonymous because she let me drive her car Um, and generally speaking your insurance company for your car does not want you to drive with a blind person in the front seat Um, but she's a writer friend who wanted to support me in learning how to drive for the purpose of the book.
0: You have another passage I'd be curious to ask you about on page four. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You write the following. If you're disabled, either visibly or invisibly, via physical or mental or other means, you may also have some preconceptions that need altering. After all, the disability community is not a monolith. If you've met someone who is deafblind, I want you to think about what they looked like, what adaptive devices they used, how they adapted to the world around them. If you haven't, I want you to imagine, it. can't picture it, can't picture me. Let's try an exercise of the imagination. What does a blind person look like to you? Do they wear dark glasses, carry a white cane or have a guide dog? Are their eye sockets empty? Or does a cloudy cataracted pair of eyes live within their ocular sphere? Do you know, are they wearing sunglasses or prescription lenses? Does a deaf per, what does a deaf person look like? Can you even tell if they're deaf until they turn up their hearing aids or until they sign? Okay, now flip to the back of this book. Take a look at the headshot on the back cover. I'll wait. Do I look deafblind to you? I know I don't. Do I? What do you want readers to take away from these words?
1: I want people to recognize that they can't recognize a disabled person on the street if they see one. Because... A lot of the time when I am on the street by myself and I take a look at my phone to make sure I know where I'm going, or if I'm walking with my white cane and I have some ability to see, turn my head, look around, people will stop me in the street and say, but are you really blind? And so it's that assumption that you know what you're looking for, that I want people to stop assuming. I want people to stop thinking that they know. I know what a blind person looks like. I know what a deaf person looks like. I know what a wheelchair user can do. I know what a person with autism sounds like or looks like. You don't. The only thing that you know is what your own body does. You can't possibly know every variation of disability in every vector because every disabled person is different.
0: Alexander Graham Bell recurs frequently in your book. What were his attitude toward the disabled and toward disability.
1: Alexander Graham Bell was a eugenicist. He believed that deaf people shouldn't intermarry. He believed that we should not have deaf people anymore. And he believed that we should assimilate. He did not support number of efforts by the deaf community in order to exist and be supported. Um, If you want to learn more about that, I highly recommend reading Katie Booth's The Invention of Miracles, which is an excellent book on the topic of Alexander Graham Bell and disability. Um, and his efforts to eradicate deafness.
0: Can you tell us about your Aunt Mary? What are some of your memories of her? What kinds of things did she say to you, and what impact did these words have on you?
1: My Aunt Mary was the only blind person in my family, um, and she was the first person to hand me a white cane. Um, She was the person who told me that there were ways for me to adapt outside of what I had sort of been told or expected to do. And so the impact that she had on me was that I started to piece together my blind identity because she was able to see me as a blind person.
0: Can you comment on the 1927 court case, Buck versus Bell? What can we learn from this episode in American legal history?
1: Buck v. Bell was the first time that we can sort of point to ableism being enshrined in the American legal system. And it allowed for the courts to decide that they could legally sterilize disabled women against their will. This was specifically pointed at women with developmental disabilities, but it has permeated both our legal system and our medical system since the, since 1927. the The case is almost a hundred years old at this point. And we definitely need that to be repealed. We need that, that particular case law to be overturned. And we need to start finding ways to fight back against that concept because I can tell you that disabled women all over the United States have been told by doctors, we can sterilize you in order to make it so that you don't make more disabled people. And that does not happen to women who are non-disabled in the same way. It does happen to black women, it does happen to women of color, but the the disabled women that I know who have had children have also been told by doctors, oh, well, while you're under, or, you, or you're having your C-section, we'll just make sure we sterilize you. And that was not what they wanted or what they asked for. So it's, it's a pervasive issue and it all goes back to Buckley Bell and what literally has been written down as reasons to not allow disabled people to reproduce. This is definitely linked to Alexander Rempel, um and his thoughts around eugenics in the United States.
0: What can the history and legacy of Nazi Germany's T4 euthanasia program teach the
1: contemporary United States? Well, we shouldn't do it again. Uh, That's the first one. But I think the thing that I want people to understand is that disabled people were the test balloon for the Holocaust. Um, It is not jump straight to Jewish people in camps. It is starting in the late 1930s. Nazi Germany was exterminating disabled people on a regular basis. There was a plan. It was carried out and no one made a sound. And because those disabled people were murdered by the government and they were exterminated, the Nazis believed that they could carry out the same exact thing on non-disabled Jewish people. And they did. And so when disabled people start becoming harmed, when disabled people are being harmed by a government in groups, it is time to pay attention because disabled people are the guinea pigs for bad people. Disabled people are a group that has been seen as vulnerable time and time again. And so T4 and knowing that it existed is an important part of understanding how the Holocaust happened and also how disabled people have been undervalued over the last 100 years.
0: What was the Bollinger baby case of 1915? Can you explain how Helen Keller responded to it? What are the ramifications of this case.
1: So in 19, in the 19 teens, John Bollinger was born and he was born with severe medical disabilities at birth. And his doctor told his parents that they should just let the baby die. And this case became very public. It was an extremely public case around uh, disabled infancy. And Helen Keller actually wrote a letter to the new Republic, saying that absolutely disabled babies like that one should die. That she believed that panels should be set up with physicians to decide whether or not an infant with developmental disabilities should be allowed to live. And this was all predicated on extremely problematic concepts around whether or not a child with a disability like that would be a criminal. Uh, definitely uh, hinged a lot on the concept of whether or not someone could be of use to society. And all of that, I think, again, unfolds into this larger issue of eugenics in the United States. The United States has always had a eugenicist streak. There is nothing that I can say that will um, enforce that more than the fact that this was a national news issue. And even Helen Keller weighed in, she herself, a disabled person, and said that it was fine to let a developmentally disabled baby die. So our country has eugenicist roots, and part of what I want people to think about is how they can undo that eugenicism within their own cultural framework.
0: What do you think of TV programs such as House and Grey's Anatomy? What do you think of their depictions of doctors and the disabled? What is similar and different about these shows vis-a-vis other popular depictions of doctors and the disabled? Can you compare and contrast these shows with the soap opera General Hospital and its depiction of doctors and the disabled?
1: So the medical genre is really complicated because there are some shows like Call the Midwife that do a great job of understanding the relationship between disability and medicine. And in those particular instances, disabled characters are not, their, their disabilities are not plot points in the same way that they are on, say, House um and house is an interesting concept on itself because of course it also has a disabled doctor in the main role but when you watch a medical genre show what i think people need to pay attention to is whether or not disabled bodies are plot points and problems to solve or if they're real people you can tell the difference because in some shows the disabled characters are fully formed humans and they actually have conversations and their contexts are understood Instead of being treated as single one-off problems, like a monster of the week episode. And so when you feel like the diseases or the disabilities are basically the monster of the week from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but in a medical show, uh, that's when you're watching a medical show that is essentially profiting <laughs> from the pain and disabled experience. And in shows like Call the Midwife, what they're actually doing is trying to tell the stories of what it was like to be disabled or to be a woman in the 1950s and 60s in England. And they're also showing the NHS and what it was able to do for people in situations that were untenable. So that, that's sort of the, the difference that I see on a broad spectrum.
0: Can you tell us about the play The Miracle Worker by William Gibson? What does this play convey
1: the miracle worker is a play it's the most famous play about helen keller it's been made into a movie twice um in both instances helen keller was played by a non-disabled actress um the broadway revival of the miracle worker in the last 10 years uh was with a young blind woman as the understudy but not as the main helen keller role um And in The Miracle Worker, William Gibson does not provide Helen Keller with a voice or a perspective. It is a play that is about her, but it is not with her in the story in the same way. And Helen Keller did have a perspective on her experience growing up and learning how to speak and learning how to sign. And that perspective is nowhere in The Miracle Worker. It also essentially turns it into a horror story. Uh, the back cover copy of the 1970s version that I have in my office literally refers to Helen Keller as a wild animal. So these these depictions do a lot of harm because it turns a young disabled woman into a monster rather than telling her story. It tells the story of the people around her and their experience of her disability as bad rather than it being her experience of learning and changing and adapting to a world that wasn't built for her.
0: What is a scleral shell? How did receiving scleral shells when you were younger impact you?
1: Uh, I didn't receive a scleral shell until I was in my 20s. A scleral shell is uh, essentially 19th century technology. It is a piece of acrylic plastic now, but they used to be made out of thin glass um that sits on your eye and acts as a prosthetic lens and that prosthetic allows your eye to be protected from the outside world so i wear a prosthetic shell a scolaral shell every day i put it into my right eye every morning it stays until until i go to bed and what it does is it acts as armor for an eye that otherwise doesn't have that same protection from the world
0: can you tell us about the tv show scream why is it problematic
1: the TV show Scream uh, was problematic because the evil villain character was a disabled teenager who essentially was terrorizing all of his classmates in order to take revenge for the fact that he could not go to the prom. And that's problematic on a couple <gasps> of different levels. But I will say that my main issue is that disabled characters are almost always villains in horror, or else they're the victim. And it's very rare to see a disabled character with any kind of agency outside of harming people in the horror genre. And so that's part of why Scream was problematic for me as a media critic.
0: What is your perspective on disabled virtuosos in music, such as Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles? What is right and wrong about the media's depiction of these individuals?
1: Well, I mean... Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles both have spent their lives creating music, and that's fantastic. And what I think is problematic is that sometimes people get distracted by the idea that they're blind, and that's what makes them good at being musicians. Whereas what makes them good at being musicians is that they worked hard and they learned their crafts, and they like to perform, and they are excellent performers. It's not their blindness that makes them who they are. It's their skill and their talent and what they've tried to do that has made them who they are. And those two things are very different.
0: In your footnote on page 139, you allude to Kia Brown's hashtag disabled and cute. Can you tell us about this? Why is it notable?
1: So, in oh, I don't even remember what year that was. I think it might have been 2015 or 2016. It's been a while. Um, Kia Brown started a hashtag called disabled and cute. And it was in response to the fact that many people say disabled people aren't cute or pretty or attractive. And so lots and lots of disabled people then began posting selfies, including myself with the hashtag disabled and cute. And it was a way of showing that disabled people are just as attractive as non-disabled people. It was a really important hashtag. Um, and while I personally am not a huge fan of the word cute, because I think it can be infantilizing. I also think it was an incredibly important hashtag. And it was a moment where disabled people came together to celebrate um, what we look like and the joy that we have for each other.
0: You write as follows on page 244. In many ways, being disabled is itself an act of protest when I exist in public outside the confines of an institution when I proudly display my cataract when I refuse to hide my hearing aids, these are all forms of resistance against the ableist system. Visible disability in public is an act of civil disobedience, but like all good civil disobedience, it's not an isolated act. My friends and my partners are co-conspirators. Those who left me for the body that I inhabit, and not in spite of it, are also participating in that action. Why? Because being my friend or my partner requires patience, it requires a rejection of able norms, to stop expecting that I will conform to the society that allows able supremacy and start and starting to operate from a place of interdependence and adaptation. It's a subversion of everything you've ever been taught. If we assume, as I do, that the mere presence of a disabled body on a public street is an act of civil disobedience, then we must acknowledge that a disabled body. At any political action, whether it be a nonviolent protest or political rally or march, radically politicizes the disabled body, which is why when I step onto the front line of a protest, I do so with much deliberation. I know what it means to weaponize the vision of disability. I know when it matters, and I know what the political implications are when it is visible. What do you mean in this passage? Can you clarify? Can you speak more
1: about I- this? Sure. I mean, I think that a society that believes that disabled people should live in institutions and not be seen and not be heard is a society that is consistently shocked when we are out in public. And I see that when people are shocked that I have children. I see that when people don't believe that I can get around on my own or that I dressed myself. I see that when my literal existence is something that people find unnerving. And I see that with other disabled people as well we have been expected for so long to hide ourselves that when we are out in public living our own lives, that itself is radical. And so yes, it is an act of civil disobedience to choose to not hide. It is an act of resistance to show my disabled body as it is, and not to participate in that culture of sort of not letting the disabled body be seen, not experiencing my hearing aids with bright colors, not hiding my cataracts. I have a scleral shell that is painted to match my left eye. I don't wear it because I don't think that that serves me. And I think that it's asking me to look like someone I'm not in order to make other people more comfortable. So yes, it's, it's absolutely a radical act to choose disability in public.
0: You quote Stella Young as follows on pages 16 and 17. I am not your inspiration. What does this phrase mean to you? Who is Stella Young? How did you first learn of and hear about this quote?
1: So Stella Young was an Australian disability rights activist who gave a TED Talk in which she said, I am not your inspiration. And that TED Talk was very important to the modern disabled community because she gave us permission to resist when people tell us it's so amazing that you can do, I don't know, crossing the street by yourself. And that's something that happens. People will come up to us and say, you're so brave for being alive. You're so brave for existing in the body that you live in. Your experience is so inspiring. And I I I resent being an inspiration, as many other disabled people do, because I'm just trying to live my life. And people telling me I'm inspiring for doing little things like getting dressed in the morning or even tolerating that I live in this body isn't really a helpful response so Stella young is very important to me because she gave permission to a disabled generation to say no i don't want to be inspiring to you
0: can you describe your experience with radio radiation poisoning
1: uh i don't so have experience- that you feel comfortable well i don't have experience with radiation poisoning i have experience with ableism which i describe as a metaphor for radiation
0: mm-hmm. can you
1: explain that metaphor sure Ableism is an invisible force that exists in the world everywhere that we go, and it's poisonous, and it, it harms people on a daily basis. And so that is very similar to radiation poisoning. It is, that's what the metaphor is, is that you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't hear it, but it's there all the time, and it's causing you harm.
0: On page 55, you write the following. I appear in the Mütter Museum's catalogue. My occluded cataract lies behind glass in a case among other medically interesting eyes. The first time I visited the Mutter, I remember delightedly shouting, oh, look, I found me. And then I found the eyes of the crowd shift. Then I felt the eyes of the crowd shift from the case to my face and back again, silently confirming what I already knew. My eye was quite literally on display there. Can you elaborate on this passage?
1: So. The Mütter Museum is in Philadelphia, and it is a museum that has been around since the 19th century, and they specialize in understanding unusual bodies. Now, in the the 19th century, it was absolutely a medical freak show. They have fetuses in jars. They have different body parts. They have all sorts of skeletons. It's a grim museum, Um, and they have tried to work on redeeming their image a little bit to be less of a freak show situation um when i talk about my eye being in the case i mean literally there is a glass eye in the case that looks precisely like my right eye and they have that glass eye in a case with a bunch of other glass eyes that are from the 19th century that have been painted to look like different disabilities and different eye conditions and so when you are a disabled person in that space and you draw any sort of attention to yourself, you become part of the display because you may be the only disabled person in the room in a room full of pieces of disabled people. And it is the experience of then becoming a part of that museum display that I'm describing now.
0: Another quote I'd like to ask you about is on page 61. You write Mm -hmm. the following, personally, I think abled society is quite aware of what it's teaching deafblind women with this legacy, alluding to that of Helen Keller we are meant to be saints and paragons, not women who roll up their sleeves and get to work. They want us to conform to a standard that makes sense to them. In order to be deaf blind according to the world at large, I must speak with my hands, not with my voice. I must be entirely unable to hear or see. And of course, I must rely on others in order to exist safely and comfortably. Can you clarify what you mean? Can you go into more detail about what you were trying to say in that passage?
1: well i think what i'm saying there is that there is a vision that abled society has of deafblindness and if you don't fit that mold people don't think that you're deafblind and i think that that vision is coming from the miracle worker from the idea that you are either a wild thing or you are able to speak the way that people want you to speak and communicate and there is no in between there is no other deafblind experience that is acceptable and so, from my perspective, I see a lot of harm from non-disabled people uh, believing that they can identify deafblindness uh, for the non for the deafblind community, and that's a lot of what I'm saying there.
0: As we bring our dialogue today to a close, what are you working on next as your current project? Do you have anything in the works, either as writing projects that you're currently working on? or any advocacy, can can you share where your time is going now that this book is behind you?
1: Uh, Right now I'm focusing sort of in my actual community. So I've been doing a lot of volunteering at my kids' school. I've been participating in a lot of online teaching efforts um, and I'm currently just waiting for my next project to sell. So I'm sort of in that writer process moment where I'm not doing a whole lot until the things actually sell. I do have two short stories coming out this year. One of them with Us in Flux, which is the University of Arizona's future thinking project on marginalization and uh, the experience of the future. And then I have another short story called um, The Found Recollections of the Oracle of Revelar, which will be coming out next month uh, with another publisher. So keep an eye on my Twitter and it will be up
0: Thank you. I wish you the best of luck with these initiatives. And I absolutely appreciate your time and dialogue today. Thank you for everything you invested in this book. And thank you for your availability and thanks for everything you taught us and shared with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. Thanks To our listeners, uh, I'm your host Ari Barbalat on the New Books Network. Today I've been in dialogue with Elsa, We have been discussing her memoir, Being Seen, (coughs) One Deaf-Blind Woman's Fight to End Ableism, published in New York by Simon Element, 2021. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.